All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the pay link on our webpage. Thanks. And welcome back to the second part of our case for liberty. And we have with us Mark Gober and discussing his book, The Upside Down Liberty. So, where were we? Yeah, about changing minds and uh, how to... I mean, the world would be so much easier if people stopped identifying with their pet habitual thought patterns. Yes. And actually grappled with new ideas. Either they import them or they get them from within. If we acknowledge a metaphysical reality, aspect of reality, then we need to study to understand this. We, I mean, this thing about studying intense paradigm shifts and realizing, yeah, if you have a team of therapists behind you, then it goes smooth and it becomes a healthy thing and a powerful thing and something you can grow from. So that's one good lesson. Another lesson is, I think, to study consciousness in terms of power. Because we already pointed out, um, Alex would call it evil, but, you know, this pathologies in, in psychology, but in even more transcendental level, in a more metaphysical level, and now we're <laughs> entering the domain of archons. Mm-hmm. If mind is primary, if it's mind over matter, then obviously controlling mind is a hugely powerful tool, which I believe is why power institution in the past wanted to do this, whether it was religions or, or whatever it was. Harvesting of consciousness is very good. It's, it's the matrix thing, right? Yeah. And final point here is that, um, look, I always say, if you want to really control someone, forget about blackmail, bribe, begging, threatening, forcing, and whatever other, I, I mean, I could go on. There's a million ways to try to control people. The best way is to remove their memory. Oh, okay, yeah. Remove their memory, and you can make them believe anything you want to. And you can even do it with a smile on your face and Mm. and gentleness. And that's why, was it you who said it? I think you said something very crucial. You said that if the censorship and the manipulation of reality today goes into the history books, that's going to be what people believe. So we're never going to remember that there was this period of absolute anarchy in the world there was one but no nation state has had anarchy the only state that has had a successful anarchy is the internet yeah if you control the internet and then give a couple of generations they will never they will believe that it's dangerous to have a free internet still today i think most people will remember no no it was totally fine we don't need to Right, But in the future, they may be able to, and the same goes for all areas of history, that they can control it by spinning the narrative. I mean, it's basically what Soviet Union and Nazi Germany did in real time. They overnight changed history and fear made the new reality, the consensus. Nobody believed it, but fear controlled it. But eventually, if you can go on long enough, people will believe it. This is a concern of mine. Yeah, this notion that we 
how can we really trust history given all that's happening right now? We're seeing that uh, what the reports of what happens in the world, um, it's coming from a biased perspective and often from a manipulated perspective. And then that goes down as the mainstream narrative. Um, and then who's to say that there are things that happened in the past where we read it in the history books and it actually happened in a completely different way. We're seeing even right now the rewriting of history, like on the internet where certain uh, URLs are, are disappearing, um, like articles that you can't find, dictionary definitions being changed. Yeah. Like the definition of an anti-vaxxer now is someone who opposes mandatory vaccination. It's expanded. Yeah. And definition of vaccine they changed during covid I guess because these vaccines are just therapeutics and didn't really give immunization. Uh, and even uh, the pandemic definition they have changed. Right. <laughs> all, all those three directly related to COVID. Look it up, folks. Yeah, it's a changing of, of what reality is. And what you're describing, Al, is a, a form of amnesia. If an amnesia can be created, then the next, the future generations wouldn't know what happened in the past if you can erase history or steer history in a different way. Yeah. So for me, as a researcher and someone who's trying to understand what's going on here, I am now very open-minded as to uh, pictures of alternative history. I don't feel like I have a very good perspective on what preceded my short time here. <laughs> you feel very at home at our channel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have a lot of shows about that. Yeah. But but uh, if they can hijack the narrative in real time, obviously, yeah, they can hijack history too. So that at the end of the day, oh, it's just, you know, your grandfather is a crank. Yeah, that's how we remembered it. No, no there was never <laughs> any freedom like that. <laughs> but, but what about this thing about controlling consciousness? I want you to address that a little. I'm sure you've been thinking about it. Could it be some metaphysical advantages we, we're not seeing here? It's something I think about a lot. And my, my speculation is that if people understood their true nature as part of this infinite field of consciousness where we're interconnected and we're ultimately made of something that seems like unconditional love, like if people understood that, understood the notion of consciousness after the body dies, these are very comforting and empowering ideas. It makes each person and each individual important because each person is a, I call it like a, a piece of a, a cosmic puzzle. Each person is a unique piece and therefore has great importance. Whereas the messaging that we get these days is much more about fear and that the individual isn't that important or is disempowered. And if we think about if consciousness is all reality, if consciousness is being steered in a certain direction, how does that impact the physical world around us from a metaphysical lens? That's something I think about a lot. So it's almost like there could be a, a harvesting of consciousness yeah. to to uh, push toward a nefarious uh, goal, whereas what we're trying to do in this evolutionary battle on a collective scale is to transcend that and move in the other direction. Right. You talk about metaphysics meets political and economical theory. Um, could you elaborate a little on that? We've touched on this a bit here and there, but it, it's the idea that with regard to politics and economics, traditionally they are examined in a bubble of just how should we organize society? What is the what is a liberal perspective or a conservative perspective? What is a socialistic economic perspective, et cetera? And the way I, I think about it from that perspective, but also thinking about it from, well, if we are one consciousness and we're here to evolve, how do we think about politics and economics? Um, and ultimately, what I conclude is, is sort of what we discussed before, that we have to move towards a much freer 
uh, form of governance, which some would call voluntarism or something in that direction where we have much more liberty to evolve, um, but also from the perspective of economics, which we haven't talked about quite as much in this interview. Uh, but I go into what's known as the Austrian school of economics. Mm. It's essentially a, a very free market way of thinking, this idea that the market has greater intelligence due to the individual preferences of all the people in the market relative to the few people in government who try to regulate and ultimately distort that intelligence that is innate in the marketplace. Now, from the perspective of consciousness and metaphysics, to me, that, that is in alignment because each person is essentially channeling a form of creativity or whatever it is that we're bringing forth into the world and having a freer economic marketplace in which there are voluntary exchanges rather than coerced exchanges like we have so often with government. If we have the voluntary exchanges, it's uh, a way for consciousness to be manifesting its own creativity. Uh, wouldn't you say Bitcoin is an example of that in practice? It absolutely is. And I, I don't know if it will be the ultimate solution, but it's this idea of a, a, a much freer form of currency rather than something that is being regulated by a central banking system. Yeah, holistic politics, holistic economics. That's that's a new one. It's so obvious now that you say it, but uh, <laughs> but okay. So metaphysics means political and economical theory. So you apply the sound spiritual principles and you try to apply them to material domains like politics and economics, right? Yes, exactly. And and I'm guessing granted in the though the, because you need some map of the metaphysical, right? Um, as a psychologist, you probably know this interesting paradoxical phenomenon that, I mean, psychology is a study of the mind. Yes. And the majority in that field of academics are materialists, whereas physics is the study of the matter. And the majority of representatives, they, they have all sorts of weird paradigms, philosophically, spiritually. And that's a paradox. You, you would think if you study the mind, you become our mind over matter. If you study physics, you become our oh, But I think it goes to show that the psychological map is much harder to 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 unveil. It's not like a predetermined system, except if you go into stuff like astrology and those ancient system. But in science, you, you, you'll have the periodic table, etc. It's very tangible, the hard sciences, right? But when you come to uh, meta sciences like, or soft sciences like psychology, um, you only have, you, you, you're outside and you're trying to determine by going, it's more like a detective who has to find out what's the causation to this robbery, right? Yeah. Uh, instead of having the advantage of being on the opposite side where you start planning out uh, for a manifestation. So it's harder for psychologists to, and that makes it more vulnerable to schools uh, of ideas, to trends, like, to, to paradigms, to dogmas, to, um, I mean, you have experimental people like Jung was experimental. To a certain degree, Freud was too, although he's, he was a fraud. So his name is pretty... Um, telling so he 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 was cheating with his data. Uh, recent revelations show, but you have experimental psychologists, uh, Willem Reich, others, and so I'm I'm not bashing the whole area. I'm just saying I think it's easier to 
get it removed from reality because it's this intangible, intangible spirit. But then we have, uh, fortunately, studies in parapsychology like yes. uh, near-death and reincarnation, and that can help together with, I believe, if we study religions or spiritual traditions and we find common denominators like you shall not kill uh, or the golden rule is in absolutely every uh, religion uh, out there in one way or another. So we have uh, certain things. And so if you take those principles, uh, and I'm guessing that's what you've done, you've taken those common denominator healthy things, made them into like laws or, 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 or fundamentals of, of spirituality and then try to imp uh, um, uh, transfer that to material domains. Is that what you're doing in your book? Yes, it's what I'm attempting to do at least. Right. And it's uh, the challenge here, which you were alluding to, is that it's a multidisciplinary approach. Whereas in academia, we're talking about siloing with regard to corruption before. There's also an academic siloing where you are in your domain of psychology, which is more abstract, or you're in your domain of physics or or other areas. And sometimes there is a bit of an echo chamber within those individual domains. Whereas when we're looking at these high level questions, I think it's essential to have a multidisciplinary approach and to look at psychology and physics and parapsychology and politics and try to put them together. And um, to me, at least in my own journey, it has started with the metaphysical underpinning because we have to understand or try to understand who we are, why we're here, what the universe is, have a theory behind that before we can apply it to the more, if I want to call it mundane ideas like organizing society and economics. And then it, it becomes a, a process of application. So you were alluding to the golden rule. That it's a, an essential part of what I've written about in my book, uh, talking about not only the fact that the golden rule is found in spiritual traditions all over the world, but with regard to the near-death experience and the life review phenomenon that people experience, reliving their lives, uh, seeing how they impacted other people and then coming back in their body. Dr. Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia, who has studied many of these near-death experience cases, says that what people come back with is that uh, the golden rule is more than just morality. It's actually a form of natural law. This is built into the universe in a very fundamental way. And if that's true, then we have to organize society accordingly. And that's why one of the reasons I've been and uh, probably the core reason I'm so critical of the traditional form of governance that we have, it violates the golden rule or has that potential mm. because not every exchange is fully voluntary. Mm. Uh, what you say makes sense, but there's two things. One thing is to get people to step out of the bubble, but I think it's easier to remove some of the things that hinder them. And mind control, uh, as we may call it, is one of those elements. Can you define it for us and also give us an example of how it manifests today? Because many people believe that mind control, that's just like, okay, it's the notion of CAA beaming a ray into your head and you have to put tinfoil to protect you. That's like the level of understanding of mind control mm. <laughs> among many muggles. So enlighten us on this one. To me, it's it's a form of brainwashing. It's getting people to believe a certain perspective and making them think that that is the ultimate reality. But when we look, like you mentioned, at, at some of the government programs like the MKUltra program in the United States, which is now widely acknowledged as being real, um, the these techniques have been mastered. That's what it appears 
based on the research that I've done of how, how you can, uh, through trauma and through fear, alter someone's personality, in some cases, actually creating a separate personality by dissociating and, and splitting the, the original personality. Um, but the, the overarching point here is that the essentially technology exists uh, to alter the mind, and that can be used on a mass scale. So when I see what's happening with the mainstream media, for example, and the censorship, to me, that is just another form of steering consciousness and using fear and trauma to be able to more easily hypnotize. When you say technology, you mean tools, right? Yes, yes. I'm using the word technology almost metaphorically there. Yeah. <laughs> that it's uh, that the mind can be altered in a way that's systematic. No, no, but they have also technology. Are you familiar with the Spartacus letter? No. Okay. Well, it was censored everywhere, just super censored. The only way it's been spreading is from person to person. It's even a buzzworded algorithm. So if you try to share it online, it's going to be taken down. Now, this uh, Spartacus letter came in 20, I think. Allegedly, it was a bunch of anonymous scientists who blew the whistle on COVID. And it's, it's like a three-page text where it goes through systematically uh, everything concerning the pandemic. But it gives bam, bam, sources, every second sentence, bam, bam, bam. Every claim is backed up by a million sources, which is why this document is so dangerous, because it's very hard to debunk something that every little foresees all the attempts to try to spin it. And most of the claims there were wild conspiracy theories, but have now been confirmed like the lab leak and uh, the nature of the virus it even contains an element of HIV. So mm -hmm. it's a lot of stuff that has been confirmed. Uh, I don't know if you know the saying, do you know the difference between reality and conspiracy theory? Six months? Yeah, minimum. <laughs> okay. Minimum six months is the answer. That's important because sometimes it takes a little more. So that's what happened here. One thing that hasn't been confirmed yet I'll send you the document later. You can go through it if you like. It's a speculation they do at the end, but it's an informed speculation. It's a source-based speculation where they show that some very obscure, of course, CIA or military, some governmental three-letter institution. Uh, no, I think it was DARPA. DARPA, I think, okay. has found ways, the experiment ways how you can influence the mind with... Like, theoretically, you could have a vaccine or, or a shot where you put in some stuff in you. I, I, I forgot the details. And then, remotely, you can influence uh, parts of the brain, like fear centers. Or I'm, I'm not saying they can put voices into your head by this. I know there's technology to put voices into your head, by the way, but that's just like a radio. But this is like controlling your emotions, which is much more dangerous, because then you think it comes from yourself. Mm. but there are tools. So look into that science because, again, it's it's source. But they're not saying COVID is this. They're saying this is one of the dangers if you really want to see the worst-case scenario of what could be going on here. And I believe you said in your discussion with Alex that you felt, because the whole pandemic thing is so acceleration and put on the extreme in such a short time span. It's derivation from the drip-drip slow way it's usually going so i think you said that you feel something is up something is is wrong something is going on uh, an x factor we can't see was that you 
Um, it's, I, I don't remember everything I said in that interview, but it sounds like something I would say that there, there is a, right. something, something that is uh, enabling the, the rapid change that is uh, beyond our current understanding. I mean, I'm open to theories. We, we know uh, how important mind control has been to power structures because so much has become publicly available that we have to be open-minded, I think, to many of these ideas that are alternative. And we know how influenced the mind is uh, by, by biology generally, by the food that we consume, by the chemicals that we are around, even from that conventional perspective. Mm -hmm. We know that the mind can be um, calcified to a degree or expanded or healthier or sicker. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel like I have a good understanding, although I'm just, I'm now very curious because of how quickly this has unfolded. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's an X factor. Uh, you said uh, right now, you said in the incentive, is that what you said? Yeah, there is an there is an incentive for the power structures to want something like this to happen if you really cared about power. Right. But I, I'm suspecting there's a causation we may not see too. And look, YouTube, we're not talking about if vaccines work or not. Okay, we're not talking vaccines here. But I'm talking meta. I'm talking about this, whether it works or not, or, or to what degree it works, or, or on what areas it works. It is immaterial to my point. My point is this extreme push to make absolutely... I've seen talking heads, news heads in mainstream media with a straight face claiming, demanding that Everybody in the world should be vaccinated, not just everybody, but all animals too. Not just animals in zoos, etc., but in the wild. They seriously believe it's feasible. Even if that was the only way to save the world, it's impossible to do. You can't manage to vaccinate every fucking creature. But they believe this, or they, maybe they don't believe it, but this is what they're saying. And it's not being... I mean, we could talk about the. Let, let me note down fact checkers. I want to make a point of that later. But okay, <laughs> this is insanity, and I'm thinking this enormous push. I, I see two reasons for it, which are logical. One, they need scapegoats. They need to create new Jews or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, so that's a, a psychological game that's beneficial for the powers that be. But they also want to make billions. One of the reasons they have oppressed directly, and there's a lot of evidence for this now, but they suppressed the information about COVID treatment. We've had COVID treatment from very early, but it's not getting any... Uh, this is one of the reasons your organ is so popular. So I can see those two points. But even with those two incentives, it's still something very suspicious about this insane push to get absolutely everybody vaccinated and oh i've been eno around enough uh, <laughs> conspiracy facts to yeah. it's not hard for me to see a potential very sinister x factor that we're not aware of there in the line of what the spartacus letter said about embedding certain um i don't know if it was chemicals or even biological material that in some ways can be uh, used as um, strings or tangents to play up our emotions. That, to a certain extent, that would uh, infer mind control. Because if there was such a thing, you know, creating hatred for the unvaccinated could be one way to to play on this black instrument. You see what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think we have to be open to 
very sinister possibilities that are not being presented to us by the media. I, I don't know what the exact answer is, but I'm suspicious given all that's happened and some of the ir- irrationality and, and really anti-scientific behavior of yeah. basically just decreeing something without uh, backing evidence, evidence-based backing for so much of it. And it is creating an us versus them mentality, which we've seen so much throughout history where there's essentially a ganging up of one group against the other. In my book, I mentioned Dr. Gregory Stanton's 10 stages of genocide. And I, I of course, hope we don't get there. But the first step in that is create, d- d- divide people into an us versus them. Right. And ultimately, it moves into dehumanizing people so that when the genocide does come, it's more like an extermination rather than actually killing another living being. And we are seeing disturbing trends in what you might call medical apartheid or, um, segregation, discrimination. And currently it's on the basis of medical status. In the past, it was on the basis of other things, maybe race, Mm. ethnic groups, and now it's just redirected to something else. Mm. Um, So that's alarming. And and also the the, uh, desire to just medicate everyone with a lack of long-term testing. And (laughs) there are lots of questions that are not being answered. And there seems to be a push to get everyone injected which is completely unscientific, never in any medical phenomenon ever has there been one size fits all. Basic physician is, you have to adjust it to the patient. And and this ignorance of natural immunity, it makes me super suspicious. I mean, it's just basic scientific facts and health facts are just thrown out the window. Yeah. Well, the the direction that the narrative seems to be moving in, regardless of the specifics, is mm-hmm. number one toward moving in the direction of less liberty for the individual under the guise of providing safety. And the other is toward the the benefit of the large pharmaceutical corporations. Yeah. Right. That that anything that would counter um their profit making and their distribution of of whatever they're putting out, that is to be shut down. Anything that questions it. Yeah, but that that's within the conventional uh, paradigm because that's basic exploitation of corporatism, right? Sure. They buy the politicians, they buy the media, and now we want to sell as much as possible. If it was only that, and the, if that was the only reason why they want to demonize people who don't want to take the vaccine, I would make a relieved exhalation because that we can handle. Uh, if it's worse than that... I, I think it may be game over. You mentioned 10 steps. I haven't heard about them. Do you recall them by heart? Um, I mean, you can't elaborate on every 10, but could you could you list them? Yeah, it's just generally it starts with, uh, well, first of all, I want to acknowledge what you just said, that they're, I mean, I'm open to nefarious possibilities too. <laughs> we have to, if we look at the history of governments, they've done some um, really horrible things to people. So we just, we, we have to be open-minded. And I think at least to hold that as a possibility. <laughs> um, but with regard to the, the 10 stages, it, Dr. Gregory Stanton is his name. The first step is classification of an us versus them. And then there's a symbolization, which is forcing people to identify themselves. So in Nazi Germany was wearing a yellow star. Yeah. And we, we see some of this right now in some places where you have to identify whether or not you've had the medical procedure. Absolutely. Um, and then there's a, a form of discrimination using laws or other things. Um, dehumanization, which is a kind of categorizing people as less than human. Then organ yeah, yeah don't give them don't help the unvaccinated in the emergency ward uh, help the smoker 
help the guy who crashed in a car because he drove too fast, help the fat guy and the diabetic with their lifestyle problems, help all others, everyone who caused their own stuff, except the guy who didn't want uh, experimental medical uh, intervention (laughs) for health reasons. Well, even the term the unvaccinated is a dehumanizing term. Yeah. It's uh, it's uh, people who have not taken the vaccine. That's the more precise way of describing it. Mm. Um, so there is this, it, it seems very concerning. I, I saw that shift. They started with vaccine hesitant. Then it was vaccine skeptic. Now it's just anti-vax, whatever. Right. If you're not shouting, every creature on earth should take the vaccine, then you're anti-vax. It doesn't matter if you've taken the vax three times, you're still anti-vax. Right. Or if, anyway, go on. If you've taken two and then not the third, that that could be considered anti-vax. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. it's moved. The goalposts have moved. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so after dehumanization, there's the organization which is getting uh, getting ready for killing, basically. Um, then there's a step that Stanton uses of of pol- increased polarization, then formal preparation to for the genocide itself. Persecution, which is the violation of actual human rights and creating death lists and depriving. That, that's when I start arresting people who who haven't taken the vaccine, right? It could be that, or or saying you are deprived of basic resources or your, your property. Oh, okay, even before, yeah, property. Okay, then we're already there. I'm just trying to apply it in the world because the camps are already up in Australia and in Austria. Oh, very bad karma living in other countries with AUS. A- Obviously, in Austria, there they have uh, there's a mandatory vaccine. Meaning, if you don't take it, you'll get insane fees, tickets, right? Right. And eventually, if you don't pay those, you'll end up in jail. So basically, you have jailing of people who doesn't want to take the vaccine per today. I don't understand why they're not just forcing it into them, but I, I guess they earn more. It's more in the interest of this agenda to hassle people. Uh, the agenda may not be as much to actually put the vaccine inside of them as it is to have this scapegoat people and hassle them. Like the, the leader of France said, we're going to make the life a living hell. Right. So yeah, go on. Yeah. And, and I, I believe he said something along the lines of, of uh, those who don't take the injection are irresponsible and irresponsible people are not citizens. Right. Um, so that sort of language is also dehumanizing and, and creating that wedge. But along with persecution, um, you mentioned the, the the camps. I mean, that's that's something that's mentioned in these ten steps is that deporting people into camps. Um, and then there's also can be a, a prevention of procreation through forced sterilization, yeah. things yeah. like that. So this is dark stuff, unfortunately. Um, but then after persecution, it moves into the actual extermination. That's the ninth step. And the final step that Stanton mentions is denial. And it's basically covering things up by digging mass graves and burning the bodies and blocking investigations, hmm. etc. Interesting. Hmm. So uh, even before the, the censorship started before COVID, it started uh, f- uh, on social media, started in 2016. But there was a lot of hope. People always said, oh, the internet is going to save us. And I believe that for a long time until this... Uh, crackdown on internet started in 16 for real but that tells us doesn't that tell us that free information is crucial it's for getting a healthy society yeah yeah it's essential and even from a metaphysical standpoint information and education influence the state of our consciousness and if the state of our consciousness is the 
the basis of all reality, then to inhibit information would be a way to uh, enslave people, to steer them away from their own empowerment. Right. Your final chapter is called, What is the Path to True Liberty? And uh, you call it a shift in consciousness. We've touched it, but uh, we've been um, lamenting all the bad stuff. So we need some hope here. So <laughs> can you can you instill some inspiration in us? Although the way I just, what's the path out of this? Yeah, the way I describe it in simple terms is uh, the way the way to to liberate ourselves is to spiritualize our lives. Number one, and number two, to get the government out of our lives. That's in short how I see it. Um, and what I what the term that I use in the book to describe this form of a spiritual voluntarist society, I use the term non-dual voluntarism. Mm -hmm. Non-dual meaning one consciousness that we're a part of. Um, voluntarism meaning that there is no government structure as we have it now, but we have service providers that we have a voluntary exchange with and mutually agreed upon contracts effectively. Mm -hmm. So that that we need to move in that direction even if we don't get there in a full sense, because right now we're on the opposite end of the spectrum. We're in a much more materialist and state-controlled uh, paradigm. And I'm, I'm saying we need to move to a freer paradigm and a more spiritual one. How do we do that? How, how that change would happen, I really don't know. I mean, some people speculate that it could take a long time, that it would be gradual. Other people think that it might happen very quickly. But to me, the, the, the mechanism will start with a shift in consciousness and a, a recognition of what's happening. And that's why I felt so compelled to write this book is to try to at least open minds to these new possibilities. Because when we realize that we are innately free beings from a spiritual lens, but also from the lens of being in society, um, that we live under a structure that has inherently oppressive qualities, even though some governments are more oppressive than others, to recognize that that the government doesn't determine our morality, for example, it can create a law that deter that that basically says, it's immoral to do certain things, even though that violates your morality. But mm. there's something empowering to recognize that, that no, they're not in charge at the highest level. Right. But then uh, I can see why they want people to buy into a materialistic paradigm, because there's no compass there. You can make people believe anything. You can put it in... Uh, like an extreme right-wing uh, dystopia, extreme left-wing, uh, right at center, which is corporatism. Uh, because if you have a strong, either let's say you're a spiritual being, uh, an old adage says the religious follows the church's guidance, the spiritual follow the soul's guidance. So let's say you have a strong feeling of right and wrong and stuff like that. Yeah, you, you're good. You're vaccinated <laughs> against government overreach. Right. Let's say you also follow religi religion. This is one of the reasons many religious people are dissidents, because they believe that they are coming for our values. It doesn't matter which religion. All of them are against this thing too, and especially having fundamentalism replace the religion, putting more and more cartoonish. Again, it's the uh, bring in the clowns, bring in the wackos to scare people from. See, this is the alternative, right? So, but if you in, in void of a natural innate ethics or an instilled upon, then you won't have a recourse because people don't even trust their own feelings. You may feel it's wrong when you see see the black shoppers taking away, uh, assassinating a rebel or whatever. You may feel something is wrong, but you don't trust your own. You don't have a 
grounding in anything but what you're being told, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is how I used to feel about life. I thought life was meaningless and I cared about things, but I would ultimately conclude, well, it doesn't matter that I care about it because we're all going to die anyway and there's no meaning built into any of this. And if if that is how you believe things to be, and I think science points us in that direction, mainstream science does, yeah, at least yeah. that's been my experience, then uh, then life doesn't really have meaning and there's much more of a, a free-for-all mentality. And also it lends um, more credibility to the power of government as almost a godlike figure. Yeah. If we can take away this idea of a, a higher intelligence that we're part of, then uh well, let's put it this way: If we, if people have that belief that they're that we are part of something greater, they're going to be less likely to uh, deify the political structure, mm. and therefore the political structure has an incentive to want to try to despiritualize the masses. Absolutely, not just governments; all power institutions. Yes, yes. it doesn't matter. You know, uh, a government, a weak government, compared to a multinational corporations who have more money and power than a government is the same problem. It's just another structure for the monster to to manifest through. And this, I believe, also is essential when we discuss service providers because, I mean, I'm libertarian to a certain extent, but I believe there's some areas that should not be up for, uh, you know, up for the corporations. Like, look at your prison industry. You have the exact opposite. And and the prison industry is a good example because it's a metaphor of what we're discussing, right? That's actually taking it down to the physical level, what we're discussing here. In our prison system, we don't have life in prison and we don't have death sentence. And I remember CNN had a feature, oh, Norwegian prisons, they were shocked. Look, it's like hotels. Uh, Oh, crazy Norwegians, you are rewarding criminals. Well, what actually our prison system intends to do is to restitute them out to society. And we have a much higher degree of people who are being reintegrated into society than America does. But then again, the reason for the prison system in America has nothing to do with making them restitute them to society. That's a collective concern if you agree about certain values and you leave them to the state to implement, and there's sufficient strong laws or sufficient democratic control over the state so that that can be maintained. But if you put it in, like, make money of throwing people in prison, and it's not like you are running your own prison in your town and I'm running another company who has a prison in this town. No, no, it's like... (laughs) All the prisons are run by multi-state or multinational corporations. So they have not just incentives to put people in in jail, they have also power to influence that people will be put in jail. And so so that's number one problem, that you create a problem. It's like if the dentists had enough power, you know, they would hook up with the sugar industry or something. (laughs) You see what I mean? It's a conflict of interest. And that's the, the one side of, of that problem. Another side of that problem is not just that uh, they have incentives to to implement and and control this, but also that they, uh, yeah, that they own the politicians and that a, a service provider needs, like regulations is one thing, but what about protections? Because if, if someone is strong enough in a society where 
there are no defaults. Wouldn't it just be monopolies and the strongest eat everything? And we have another example. Take a GMO. The state here so far protects us against it. Mm. Yeah, the state is a centralist power, so it's vulnerable. So if it becomes hijacked by an ideology or by money interests, yeah, you can make the state implement GMO food. But so far, it's forbidden, and so we don't get GMO food in. But in America, not only is that the default, but it's even forbidden to label it. So people won't know if they get GMO. So you, you see the problem here. What do you think about the notion of protections? Yeah, well, the idea that one of the core principles of this Austrian school of economics, because it's ultimately a, a question of free market, yeah. is, is the idea that government is not uniquely qualified to do anything. Government is made of human beings, and it's made of human beings who don't have a financial incentive in the way that a service provider does. Mm. So if, if the government does not perform well, it still gets paid. And in some cases, it gets paid more because we say, oh, wow, we didn't do a good job with education. We need mm. more funding. Mm. It has the opposite incentive to actually do a good job. Whereas if you do a poor job in the marketplace, you go out of business ultimately. And the, the notion is that that will, do, that will be, uh, have a more corrective mechanism on the whole than a government structure will that lacks the financial accountability. Now, with regard to things like prisons. So to me, it's not, it's not quite um, a full parallel because the prisons are attached to the state and I'm arguing for a stateless society. And so there, surely there would be private property owners that could have rules. And what would happen in such a society in theory, this is all theoretical. Yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, I mean, ancient Ireland apparently did something similar to this up until the 17th century, but it's still, we don't, they didn't have modern weaponry or technology. So I think this is very theoretical. Um, the idea is that, so let's say you had a private property or a community where there were certain rules, i.e. the laws of that property. And if you entered that property, you adhere to those rules. If they had a system um, where they um, were rehabilitating people that were getting in trouble, they had a very um, altruistic system where people were contributing voluntarily and they were charitable, people are going to be more inclined to interact with that type of community. Whereas if you had a place with horrible laws that people didn't like, for example, then you're going to be less inclined to interact. So the market, and then, and therefore those types of communities will be less likely to be paid because they're not offering services that people want. Mm. And that in theory would offer greater corrective mechanisms and protection than the current system. And, and this goes for regulation as well. Um, even things like food or, or financial regulation, there's nothing from at least the Austrian economics perspective preventing a private organization from doing those things. And if it does a bad job, then it goes out of business. So right now we have regulatory agencies that if they if they do a bad job, like the FDA or the CDC, for example, there's no mm. real punishment other than people being fired. But you're alluding to a problem, Al, that is it's, it's a problem that this sort of society will only work if people take on the responsibility as consumers and to say, well, we're not going to buy this brand because they haven't subscribed. They're not working with the, the, the regulator that we like, that we think does a good job of regulating this industry. People have to have the discernment within the marketplace. And that, to me, would go along with this uh, more highly spiritual and more evolved society that is not we don't have today, but I think in the future we could. Yeah. Uh, in theory, I agree with you. The problem is practice because consumers decide, well, yeah, voters decide, yeah, 
Well, what happens if they don't have, uh, I mean, let alone if they are able to make healthy choices. Many people make super unhealthy choices for themselves and their children, whatever. So that's one part of the problem, of course. But another part is uh, having access to information. I truly believe if everybody had access to real, true, good information, they would take much more similar choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not that different. Yeah. Yes, ideology, philosophy, different things would to a certain extent influence us. But there are some core values, I agree. But when people don't have access, it goes back to free speech and censorship. That That's one of the reasons I believe... Um, CIA and, and, and all these power institutions have had to work so much in researching how to control us, how to control media, you know, how to, to inform. Because, okay, if we can't influence the decision, let us influence the data they're making the decisions on, right? Yes. So, so that's one problem. Another problem, uh, do, do you want to address that before I go well, on? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the, the, you're, you're making very good points, Al. The, the counter is that, yes, you're right, but it's always relatively more problematic when government's involved. It's still problematic without government, Mm. but government makes it worse because it is an inherently uh, oppressive power structure that can control information or anything. So it could control information worse than just the private market. That's the idea. Right. No, I agree if we took corporations out of the equation. I have some radical ideas, and I, I nobody can pinpoint me on a left-right specter. I have some ideas that are generally uh, embraced by the left, and, and some ideas that are generally embraced by the right. I'll give you one example of all over the place. I think it should be forbidden to have income under a certain amount, and that should be the living level. Uh, and I think it should be forbidden to have, uh, there should be like a top cap too. In this system today, you can't have it like fixed forever because value of money will change, etc. I mean, in this system today, uh, if you go back to another kind of economical system, forget those notions. But in this traditional system, I think uh, a top cap and a minimum cap would solve a lot of problems. People today, much of the problem is that they are having two and three jobs. They don't have time. They don't have resources. You talked about quickly and slowly changing. Well, the quick change only happens in crisis. Yeah. Uh, So, yes, it's drip, drip, but uh, implement a crisis and human condition is very uh, quick at the feet to adapt, uh, whether it's for better or worse. Like now, in the new normal in COVID, we see uh, something that couldn't be real three years ago is now the new norm. So that's an extremely radical idea for many people that you should have. And if you have a top cap, uh, you will limit a certain amount of psychopathy. Uh, I'm not saying where it should be. Uh, I still believe people should be able to get rich, but I personally think this. Many people would disagree. Fine. But a more principal argument here is well, yes, government uh, doesn't have economic incentives, but sometimes that can be positive. Because if you have an economic incentive, like say you're running an old people's home, mm. whatever, and then you have to do it profitable, which means you're going to cut corners, which means you, you're going to reduce some quality. Whereas if it was run by someone who didn't have to worry about making a profit, 
than uh, the backside of the medal that economic incentives makes efficiency. The backside is, well, there we will have more quality. Now, I'm all for the free market solution if and only if you ban corporations. Don't interfere with the old woman in the town square selling her potatoes or whatever. That works fine. But when you have someone who controls decision makers, they control the, inform uh, the media and the educational institution, and they have an economic agenda, and they have psychopaths running them. I mean, yes, big pharma, yes, military industrial complex, yes, prison industry, etc. Then you get, mm -hmm. uh, there's no checks and balances. It's not a natural entity. And for me, it doesn't matter if you call it a state or a corporation. It's a huge, powerful institution that is a breeding ground for what we may call evil. And they're implementing their agenda without any concern about should this person be in prison or not? Uh, is this medicine or vaccine healthy for the person or not? We don't fucking care because we control the FDA and all that stuff. You know, there's big pharma people running these things. And... So remove the corporations. Yeah, a small market system may work. But as it is now, I see it just as bad, like the rigging of the market. All the regulations are being exploited by the big ones to facilitate their own stuff and to crush down on the smaller stuff. Usually the smaller and more decentralized something is, the better it is. This is a thumb rule, folks. If you ever wonder about political decisions, always look at, is it decentralized or more centralized? <laughs> always go for the decentralized. I think that's a healthy thing. And last pushback I'm going to give you on this. Have some dynamic, show people it's possible to have intelligent disagreement and debate, right? Yeah. Is that you say, well, if it's an economic incentive, uh, the bad stuff will wither away because people won't go for it. Again, yes, uh, granting that people are informed about what's happening. But there's another layer of problems here. And that's that, yeah, in the old days, it was to a certain extent true. But if you look at today, all the innovation and this has always been true, happens at the bottom. Creation happens among innovators, among pioneers, out-of-the-box thinkers, crazy individuals, crazy groups, trends, whatever, small, uh, like the whole internet thing and the computer age had that Klondike of what older industries used to have. In the beginning, it was, oh, everything is possible. We're open to all ideas. If you want to work in, in tech, you're going to have, I remember the cliches, when Bill Gates and those rise, it was like, yeah, people are just slacking. We're having a creation room. We have a meditation room, organic food. Everything was just perfect yeah. until that too became a mainstream industry. And what happens? Here's the point. You have the big ones. They don't create anything. They buy up or they run out of business, the competition, and they gobble up. So here's a new thing happening in within our field of whatever we are, we're doing. Now let's get rid of those small uh, competition or they made something that may become a success. Let's take over. So they never create something. They are like predators, just like the government. They are predators and they are seizing everyone who tries to rise to their level. They seize. I'll give you a short example and then I'll give you time to Okay. Rebut here. And that's in social media. Let's say you have a viable solution to 
YouTube or Facebook or, or, or Twitter, which is three different social media arenas, three different spaces. So they're not directly competing with each other. They are to a certain extent, but there are three different lanes of social media. As soon as you have someone rise, okay, cut the servers, okay, buy them, okay, blackmail their CEO, okay, regulate uh, a new law to crush them. So in reality, you never get a viable option because there's not lack of options to people, to organizations to say, hey, come to us. We have the same stuff, only without censorship. They have mechanism to take down uh, anything that threatens them in the natural market. So if people were informed, had access to good information and voted with their wallet or with their feet or whatever, you still have this phenomenon of the big corporations, which is why I think they should be forbidden. Now, sorry, I'm going on and on with my questions. My questions are, are more extensive than your answers, but <laughs> feel free to reply to this. Yeah, thank you. You made a lot of, of good points that I've, yeah. I've been wrestling with myself. Okay, good. So I, I want to address the first thing that you mentioned, which is basically your vision of a, the framework for an ideal society in terms of income levels, et cetera. Mm. Something like that is what I'm contemplating here is the... Uh, the principles of a framework for how society would run. And the principle is the non-aggression principle. You don't initiate aggression against people's property um, or their bodies. That means there could be many different societies that form with different rules and different structures. As long as the people are voluntarily contributing uh, on their own because they want to. So a universal basic income or something like it would mean that the people in that community are voluntarily giving toward that purpose mm. rather than being coerced to. Mm. So, if, so to me, that's a plausible type of society um, within the volunteerist system, but you might have other societies because people want to give their money to other causes, for example. Yeah. So that's just one, uh, one response. Then with regard to uh, corporations, I, I think Typically, when people talk about corporations, they're, they're talking about them within the context of our current governance structure, meaning that there is a, a, a state and there are corporations. And the problem with a corporation is that they are able to leverage their influence with the state to add to their power. But if the state didn't exist, then the corporation is simply a service provider that is only existing through the voluntary exchanges in the marketplace, meaning it's offering things that people are voluntarily buying. If, the minute it becomes coercive, then it's not. Then it becomes not a service provider. It becomes something that's a coercive, illegal entity. And then um, it's not a free market. Yeah. Then it's not a right. Hmm. It's not a free market. But in the free market, theoretically, if a company is providing services that people want to such a great degree that people develop wealth and the company becomes big, from the Austrian economics perspective, mm. that is not problematic inherently. Uh, we might have a, a knee-jerk reaction against it because we're concerned about the problems, but the marketplace is, is, is giving that company something uh, voluntarily. And the opportunity exists for entrepreneurs to enter to provide something better or cheaper. And if they can't do that, then that company that is the large company is providing the best service that's out there. Um, so to me, the, the fact that it's voluntary, that's the key. And then you might have companies that are bigger and, and slightly monopolistic, or maybe they're, maybe they are the best at providing the service and no one can compete with them because they are the best. And, uh, when in any human field whatsoever has monopoly proved to be beneficial? We would prefer not to have it, but what's the, <laughs> alternative? what's the alternative? We have a monopolistic political entity. 
Right. Whereas in the marketplace, at least we have the chance, we have competitive dynamics that will make a true monopoly more difficult because you're going to have entrepreneurial competitors all the time. So th- this is really the, the, the challenge here. Is- I, mean, I mean, even Ron Paul admitted that we need regulation to maintain. He, he was in favor of antitrust laws. Um, well, you could have those. So within a society, you could have rules as long as people are voluntarily yeah. agreeing to that type of society. And fraud, so, fraud laws, of course. Sure, right. Mm-hmm. And those sorts of things, if you are someone in a marketplace, you would want to have, like, let's just say in the financial marketplace, being uh, participating on an exchange, you'd feel better about putting your money on that exchange if you knew that there were proper controls in place. And and the the way the marketplace would solve for that is the exchange would have to prove to the marketplace that it is handling those issues and it's doing it better than the other marketplaces out there. Right. So the incentive exists. My point is it's not perfect, but the incentive is there toward improvement. Whereas what's the alternative? We have this government structure that is made of human beings as well. It lacks the financial incentive. And why should we assume that they will do better than than something with a financial incentive and with a competitive dynamic. Mm. Mm. Uh, did you address the, when, when they became big enough, they don't create, they just Google up all those who create or, or smash the yeah. competition. Uh, is that just possible in a state run? Is is not possible in a unregulated society, you say? Well, it is possible, but I think we have to examine the term gobbling up because if they are buying entities, then that is a, a voluntary transaction that the other the seller is getting benefit from that. Mm. So in the end, right, there is there is a, a mutuality to it. And mm. th- there is a I think there is a cultural uh, pushback to that because we say, oh, that company could become so big. But if the if everything is fully voluntary and not coercive, then is it really problematic? Well, I think the soundest free market systems are those that encourage continuous decentralization, even if someone is bright enough or, or, or smart enough, because it's not a meritocracy at all today. People believe it, but it's not. If it was, yeah, free market would be much better. But let's say it is a meritocracy and someone actually invents something great. Then uh, should that person be the only one who is allowed to... Like, like you see the same in the copyright issues, right? Yeah. If you make a piece of music or if you write a book, there's this battle between those who think that, no, you, you should own it and... and uh, Others who think that no, people should have right to at least license it, if if not own it. So, so there's a lot of. I, I mean, now we're getting bogged down in minusculous political points. I think it's interesting, though. That's why we're discussing it. Yeah. No. Well, so this is so I. I spent a lot of my uh, business career in the field of intellectual property right, right. So and patents. So I'm very familiar with what you're talking about. And the way that I would look at intellectual property in this voluntarist theoretical society is yeah. that the private property owners would have their own sets of rules and laws. And if you're participating in that system, then you, you are voluntarily adhering to what the rules are. So you might have a system that wants to have strong intellectual property rights and other communities where their, their rules say, we don't have any of that. Hmm. But it becomes voluntary on the on the behalf of the private property owner, in contrast to the current system where we have this umbrella on top right. that is essentially unilaterally determining what it thinks is best, and right. and in so doing distorts the natural intelligence of the marketplace, and from a metaphysical lens is perhaps distorting the intelligence of of the creativity that could be happening otherwise. 
Good point. So even if you lived, uh, let's say there were volunteerism and some said, ah, we're going to have strong uh, others, no. Then I, as a musician, for example, I could decide myself, folks, I'm giving away these MP3s freely and hope that you come to my concert so I can make money that way, for example. Could be up to them, right? Yeah, exactly. As long as you're on property where that that is permitted and you've agreed to enter that property, for example, um, then yeah, it's it's your choice to make it that way. Mm. Okay. Um, look, we, we can't uh, leave this debate, thought exchange, without examining, because we both realize that life is wired with mind over matter. Okay. Now, if we then study how spirit, no, that's a bad word, the metaphysical is organized, we used to think it was organized as a hierarchy, and indeed, our spiritual traditions tend to reflect that, although, of course, there's variations there too. But at least in, in the dogmatic religions, it's presented as a hierarchy. But are you familiar with Ken Wilber? Uh, yes, somewhat. I think I mentioned him in my book, yeah. You do? Okay. I think he's the one who launched the term holarchy. It seems as if nature and... Uh, including the metaphysical, is organized as a holarchy more than a hierarchy. I mean, we know it's holographic, at least. We know the, the, the holographic principle is represented in absolutely everything, from biology to astronomy. But holarchy is interesting because if we're going to look for a way to organize society which is in flux with spirit, then we need to take pointers for how the creation is rigged, <laughs> how, how nature, or, or if you like a more religious language, how God created uh, existence and take pointers from that. And that seems to be more of a holarchical principle than a hierarchical. And that makes sense because I believe there's very, very, very few people. I mean, you need to go to the level of a Buddha or a Jesus before you can say that someone can handle. Of course, they wouldn't want the power, but they could probably handle being. Caesar <laughs> without, yeah. right? But that's the irony here that the worst people are those who want it and ascend to that. It's been like the curse of humankind since dawn of existence. And I, I think one of the reasons it is like that is that lies are possible. If we were telepathic, we wouldn't have, uh, if we were telepathic, the entire globe would be different today on all areas. So, Back to the holarchy. Uh, what do you think? Can we can we implement, take lessons from from how God did stuff, the divine, and and then implement it uh, among ourselves? Well, the challenge, imitate it. The challenge is to identify what exactly that is, and to know with certainty, or with some certainty, that that is the uh, the proper organization. So I don't, I don't personally feel qualified to answer that because I don't feel like I have an understanding of what it is. Um, but, and I don't know if we could, I, maybe that's part of the design of, of how we're here is that we're not going to have all of the, mm. the details of, of how the universe is fully structured. And some of it might actually be beyond the capability of the human intellect. Yeah. So maybe we have to be in a different form to understand all of those intricacies. Or more dimensions. More Yes. More dimensions. Exactly. Um, and you're reminding me of something I, I mentioned in my new book, which gets into the, the Gnostic metaphysics uh, from the, the Nag Hammadi scriptures, there is a, a treatise called The Nature of the Rulers. And 
uh, I wasn't familiar with the Nag Hammadi scriptures until I, I got into this research, but they, they were found in 1945 in Egypt and found in a jar. These are from around the fourth century AD. And the researchers who have looked at this say that these scriptures were likely taken out of the New Testament. So there's something in them that was controversial. Yeah. And um, th this treatise that I cite in my book, it's called The Nature of the Rulers. And this is around the origin story and it involves the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve being forced out. And the scripture says, the rulers threw humanity into great confusion and a life of toil so that their people might be preoccupied with things of the world and not have time to be occupied with the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And so to me, that I, it makes me wonder all the time of what, what is the level of manipulation that's being held here where right. we don't have access to the full information to know how to structure properly. Right. It's a fascinating thought. If the system is so rigged that uh, we already lamented how easy it is for, for these bad seeds among us. I mean, it's a minority. Most people are good-hearted. Most people want the best. Yes, they become angry and uh, they become dangerous when they are sheep-herded into a fascistic structure and being uh, manipulated by fear and misinformation, real misinformation, not what the fact-checkers call misinformation. Because as we know, the fact-checkers aren't even fact-checkers. They are journalists at best. Uh, they, they are clueless. Yeah. This is why they add new things like lack context, which you can say about everything. Right? <laughs> if you can't bust them on a detail, then lacking context. Uh, I'm, I'm going off a tangent here. Back to the point. So if it's rigged, already it's a cakewalk for these human powers to, to maintain this dystopia. But if they even have help from the beyond... <laughs> If it's rigged on a fundamental existential level, where you have concepts like archons or even demons or, or whatever, a, a, a demiurge, then uh, Jesus, man, it's, it's like you have all the sleeping people in, in Matrix maintaining the system and the corrupt people, but then you have even the non-people, if you like, contributing the agents whatever so it's such a huge battle and it may be because and i'm philosophizing now this reality we're sharing on mother earth is a school and you know in a school if if all the pupils in a school uh, come together and ah you know what we don't want teachers and now we want everything to be democratic and we want to vote about this uh, we, you see what i mean yeah the school would interfere right <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> smack it down. Maybe that's what's happening, that we're supposed to suffer to a certain extent. Well, maybe not to suffer, but we're supposed to experience what we experience. And despite, uh, how should I put this? You're rewarded. Everybody knows that if you really, whether we live in this system where there's rules and regulations, you, you, you can do bad stuff and get rewarded. I mean, ever since the 2001, people have failed up in America. And we see that here in the COVID thing too. You're failing up, you're failing up. Uh, the leadership in American CDC went off in protest against the implementation of the pandemic, how unscientific it was. <laughs> and and who did they hire? Big pharma people. So you see, you're punished if you have conscience and you do the right thing and you're rewarded if not. Let's say you have a tribal society, no rules, no regulations. Same there. I want that food. I want that woman. I want that cave. Okay, I'm going to kill the person who has it. So we know 
being a psychopath is beneficial to you, materialistically speaking. Maybe, just maybe, part of the human experience is to realize that you have to follow the light, you have to follow the good, you have to follow your conscience, despite that it's rigged against it. Because think about it, Mark, if I was instantly rewarded every time I made a right choice, I would be a robot. I would be like Adam and Eve before they were cast out of paradise. I wouldn't appreciate, I wouldn't know there would be no free will and I wouldn't be a good person because I did all the right things because that was the system. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. But if you put up a world, a, a nuanced grey zone world where there's a little bit of both but a little overweight of the dark, then free will becomes meaningful. Because then I help someone despite that it has a personal cost. And I prove that I'm, I am more of the spirit than of the matter. Uh, and that I belong uh, in the realms of the blessed, as the ancient called it, the divine. It's the divine soul triumphing over the ego, if you see what I mean. Free speculation and philosophizing. Comment? Yeah. Great points that I've thought about too, and still continue to try to to grapple with. I, I view, like I said, I view life to be an evolutionary journey for our consciousness. And it might be the case that we have the greatest capacity to learn if we are in this state of amnesia and the state of not knowing all the answers and having limited perceptions. Mm. It's almost like if you took a test in school and you had all the answers in front of you, you wouldn't have to study. You wouldn't necessarily learn because you would just write in the answers that are there for you. Here, we have this blindfold on almost, and we have uh, within the duality, we have good and evil and uh, dark and light and wolves in sheep's clothing and good people and people that that are psychopathic. This is part of our evolutionary journey to navigate all of that. That's how I see it. Right. Good point. Uh, and we have sheep in wolf clothing, like Assange is portrayed as. Uh, so we have the opposite too. You're right. Yes. And, and uh, yeah, it wasn't it Buddha who said that uh, suffering uh, stimulates growth? Yeah, that's it's it's one way to look at it that it forces growth and people yeah, in the spiritual yeah. community talk about the dark night of the soul. Right. That often happens. I probably I I had one during my awakening journey where I thought life was meaningless and things weren't going great in certain areas of my life. Mm. This happens to other people in in different uh different ways where they have some kind of a trauma and it induces growth typically in a spiritual direction when talking about a dark night of the soul. So um there, there's a quote from the poet Wallace Stevens he says, death is the mother of beauty. It's, it's a similar concept mm. that we, we, need to have, we need to have that darkness, which enables the contrast for us to see and experience the light. And from that perspective, we can recontextualize good and evil. Um, I mean, and from one lens, evil is horrific and something we want to avoid. But from another lens, it is enabling growth. That's right. That's right. And uh, yeah, it's uh, challenges or blessings in disguise because, yeah, all growth. Look, if you're not stretching yourself, if you're not overcoming yourself, if you're not reaching beyond yourself, you're not growing. So, yeah, um, the, the destructive powers has some beneficial uh, functions, but it's all about a balance, isn't it? And now it's going completely off balance because yes, if we have a little of the good and a little of the bad, we have freedom. 
we we have a real choice. But if it's all bad, it's the same as it's all good, right? Yeah. Like it's a philosophical concept. We wouldn't be able to distinguish between complete darkness and total light. For all intents and purposes, that would be perceived as exactly the same to us, which is an easy metaphor to understand how we can uh, be in a world of nuances and shades, as we fortunately are. But like I see it on a collective, there are some really, should I say, really new things that has never happened on Earth before, and that makes me uncomfortable. It's that this collective thing has never been as collective there was always somewhere in the world, there's always been different things going on in the world at the same time, right? There's always a haven of freedom. There's always an, a zone of oppression or, you know, there's hunger here, there's surplus there. But this COVID thing is a reality that has been implemented on a global level for the first time in all, in known history. Mm. Well, I think one of the, the aspects of COVID that has made people suspicious in my research is the the degree of coordination yeah. that seems to be occurring that there is a similarity in the response and it it moves in the direction of being draconian typically yeah. uh, we haven't seen anything like that on a global scale we've seen it within nations to varying degrees but this is a global coordinated event and the the skeptics would say well because we have a global pandemic and we need a coordinated response in order to keep people safe the more cynical perspective is well th that is an excuse to take away rights on a global scale which has never been done before and now we have the technology to enable a global surveillance enslavement system yeah, yeah. never had it before yeah Hitler's wet, wet dream, Stalin's wet dream. No, but 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 even that uh, falls flat on the face of it because um, first off, there's no consensus. That's what the skeptics want us to believe. There's a consensus in science. Everybody agrees about everything. It's the religion. I believe in science. It's a oxymoron if ever there was one. Yeah, right. <laughs> science is supposed to be dissenting. It's supposed to fight over truth. Science doesn't survive censorship. Science should not survive. I mean, science is all about questioning. You, mm. you, can't, you can't have censorship and science. That doesn't make sense to me. And you can't have freedom and censorship either. The people who are afraid of misinformation or disinformation, as they've been hypnotized to, to believe, they must understand that, first off, the biggest source to disinformation is politicians and mainstream media and even mainstream education institutions, that's number one. But number two, the only way to battle disinformation or misinformation is what we've done already for 200,000 years. <laughs> and that's to, that's to meet bad speech with good speech. That's to meet lies with truth. That's to meet confusion with clarity. That's to put up arguments there and one of the ways to get to the, those answers, because nobody's born with them, is exactly what me and Mark has done today, and that's exchanging ideas. We agree upon some things, we disagree upon some things. At the end of the day, folks, the most important thing is to agree about values. Yes. I, I'm one of these people who are autistic when it comes to intellectual disagreement. You, you, you're going to be hard-pressed finding me getting worked up and angry because someone has another opinion. And I I realized eventually that I'm a freak of nature, that most people are so identified with their ideas that if you really threaten them 
with an uh, this goes back to the paradigm shift problem right yeah they become they take it personal as if you're boxing them in their stomach but to me i realized that we're in a world of shades where people are confused and people are different you know with different experiences leading us to different conclusions you know walk in his boots etc so the default is different ideas and that's healthy uh, that's the uh, Hegelian dialectic. You have thesis meeting antithesis leading to synthesis. That's how it should be. But a discrepancy in values is different because if someone has as a value that, yeah, torture animals, then you are very right to be upset and fight against yeah. that. So you have people with the same values, but they can have diametrical opposite political views. And they don't understand that they can find common ground. Because they have the same values. The same. You can have a Muslim and a Christian, and they can live the exact same life with the exact same values, and they still believe they are enemies. So this goes back to again that we live in a world where we 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 don't have access to the light, the truth, the reality, the 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 source. The diff we have to fight, you know battle fence through these shades of darkness and and these archons to get somewhere yeah well as you were speaking al you uh, i'm reminded of something i mentioned in my book with regard to the uh the political theory the the, the idea of voluntarism which i think allows for the disagreements that you're referring to that that, that actually healthy within society which mm. is that as long as the general principle of non-aggression toward private property and and someone's body exists and the ability to to defend oneself that is the, essentially just a, a value system of a spiritual value system of the golden rule but then within that system people will have individual preferences that differ and disagreements but the system itself allows for those individual opinions and ways of living to exist hmm. because people will make their own decisions on their own accord rather than being forced by this uh, third party that we currently have, which is, an, I view to be predatory. Um, and then those decisions, as I see it, if we move toward a more spiritual, more spiritually oriented society, this is the non-dual voluntarism, mm -hmm. is that people will make those individual decisions on the basis of spiritual, uh, personal values. Uh, so the, the example that I give in my book is, is drugs. Mm. Theoretically, from this volunteerist perspective, as long as you're, you're, you're not on private property that prohibits drugs, you can do whatever you want. Mm. And the concern would be, well, then um, you would have lots of people addicted to drugs, which is, is possible. But from this more mature the perspective of a more mature society, people would be making those individual decisions on the basis of spiritual principles. So they'd say, how would this benefit my karma right, or right. how would this benefit my spiritual evolution, et cetera? So it allows for differing lifestyles uh, within this value structure. Right. So, so yeah, so immediate karma would be one of the guiding principles, right? If, if it's not forbidden to throw yourself off the cliff, it doesn't mean that you're going to do it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, it's and like, yeah, go on. Well, yeah, two quick points. That is important because it allows people to make mistakes or to make the right decision, which is part of our evolution. Yeah. Um, and so that's really that's the key overarching point that people we uh, we need to have that freedom. And then the second point there is it allows for differences that people can make different decisions in different situations because we are um, within the duality 
there is lots of diversity and people are going to be different. They're going to be different puzzle pieces. And that individuality has a need to be expressed. Yeah. So, so that not just because that's a good idea, it's because it's beneficial to the whole. If we allow a society where people go off on different ideas and work with them, that's the only way we can have like, oh, a better idea popped up. Yes. And then some people will shift over there, right? But if you don't have that dynamic, then we're going to be stuck in something that may not even work and be imprisoned by that for God knows how long. So so it's a very important, creativity is basically, that's a very spiritual principle to allow as much creativity in as many areas of the world as possible. Yeah, and that entails have, having uh, different skill sets, different opinions, and different ways of looking at the world. And it's almost like a, the term I use is, is a cosmic puzzle, <laughs> that there's some grand design potentially that we are all uh, influencing through our own individual um, skills, resources, our abilities, and we embody that individually and uniquely and differently. Mm. Absolutely. And, and so, uh, yeah, for me, uh, variation, diversity is a good thing, uh, no matter what we, we're talking about. Uh, yes. I'm never threatened about that. Um, have pride in, in, in your values or your nature or whatever it is. Well, pride, but be happy about it. But that doesn't mean you have to put someone else down. <laughs> to, I mean, if you have to put someone else down to feel good about yourself, <laughs> it's an illusion. Yeah, yes. <laughs> And also from a karmic perspective, if you're living that non-dual life, you'd think twice about trying to put someone down because they are you to some extent and you wouldn't want to intentionally harm someone. Right. Or, or, or you could just have the longer way around the bond that, okay, if I beat up my neighbor, then uh, he'll, he'll bring his brother who will beat me up, etc. And then you're stuck in this <laughs> vendetta yeah. kind of system. Yeah, it's practical <laughs> not to do yeah. that. <laughs> Exactly. Freedom is actually practical. So if we had values that wanted the best of society to be stimulated, we wouldn't find ourselves in this global system that we are today. Yes. If that were, were something that, that people valued, and uh, I, I think if it were a more, if it were a topic that people spent more time thinking about, we'd be less tolerant of things that we've become accustomed to where there are uh, limitations on freedom just because we don't think about it. We just say, oh, that's the way it's been. Mm. Okay, we've been going for two hours. We should wind down now. But in short, this book of yours, why should people read your book? Well, the way I think about all of the material that I put out is uh, only if you want to, if you feel called to it. <laughs> but if, if you do feel called to it, what I'm hoping to achieve is to stimulate new ways of thinking, whether you agree with the ideas or not, is, is I'm, I'm hoping to challenge paradigms with regard to politics and economics and metaphysics. And sometimes those little sparks of hearing a new idea can lead to a domino effect of new thinking down the road. So that's what I'm hoping to achieve. And if you decide to read the book, um, I hope you you enjoy that aspect of it. But just having listened to this conversation, I think we covered a lot of important ideas as well. Yeah, but I have to say, your book is super interesting. It goes far beyond this conversation. Look, if I had read your book before we talked, three things would happen. Number one, 
We wouldn't be all over the place. We've gone from one point to a completely different, it's being disorganized. But that's fun too. Things doesn't have to be sequential and, and chronological all the time, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's fun. It's natural. <laughs> yeah, it is. To a certain extent, a system can also be natural. But if I read a book, what I'm saying is it would be a more structural discussion and that would be natural too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah that's true. But we had this ping point, and that's fine. Second, we would talk much more based upon, because this book is very scientific, I have to say. Um, not just that you use a lot of science, but also that it's scientific, that it's structured and, and uh, it kind of made based on scientific principles. At least you try. I see here a lot of uh, illustrations and um, interesting um, systems that you, you point to here. Uh, and, and that makes me also realize why you call it upside down, um, <laughs> which is the trademark of your uh, theme. But also, I think I would be more succinct in my questions because people will notice today that I've been talking more than you. <laughs> and that's very rare. Well, maybe not that rare with me, but not just that I make long questions, but it, usually the guy I'm talking with does the same thing, but you are the most disciplined guest I ever had. <laughs> you it's... really address exactly what I ask you and you give a concise answer and then you end your sentence. I'm not used to that. I'm used to these long reasonings. So that's, that's also a, a revelation of that I haven't read a book. Oh, yeah. But I'm trying really to make a... Um, argument for, for reading your book because I'm going to read it. I have it in front of me. It's just 200 pages, folks. And it's a very easy read that I call it sciency may put some people off, but it's, it's, it's not full of convoluted uh, abstract language. Uh, what little I read is very um, clear presented, very systematized. And uh, the glossary you have at the end, that alone is, is wonderful. You, you go through basic key concepts within uh, spirituality, science, economy, politics. It's a wild mix of, of different stuff here. That, that's one of the things I saw missing in the literature when I was looking at the political theories and the economic theories. They, again, were siloed, and I wanted to integrate the, the metaphysics and the consciousness. I hadn't seen that hmm. in this way put together. So I, uh, in some ways, that, that makes it challenging because the, um, there's so many paradigms at once that I'm, I'm putting into question, and that's why I start the book talking about cognitive dissonance, that uh, there yeah. will be many ideas in the book that will challenge worldviews. But I... I'm I'm doing this because I'm interested in understanding what what the truth is. I'm trying to get to that. That's why I ended up leaving my firm. I was on a standard business path, but I'm very drawn to these topics and understanding um, what's true holistically. Because when we get to that or move in that direction, that informs how we live, the values that we have, the priorities that we have. Uh, so this book is an attempt to integrate many things in one place. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> here we have the golden rule explained, then under there, karma explained, then Keynesian economic policy. <laughs> it's like a huge right. mix. Mararashi effect. Oh, we didn't mention that. I think that's a bit because we, we did uh, muse around solutions, right? Yep. We, and, and in a wild mix, we've had solutions and problems mixed here and there throughout the discussion. But you didn't mention this as a potential tool. 
Yeah, that's, I'm glad you mentioned it. The, the Maharishi effect is the idea that collective meditation, essentially directing consciousness in a certain direction, when uh, even relatively small groups get together, there can be a shift in the physical world. And there have been some studies that show that when groups get together, we see uh, less crime, for example, or more peace in certain areas, and more studies will be needed. Um, there's a good book called The Antidote, Antidote to Violence that I cite in the book. I believe that's the name of the book um, that talks about some of the studies that have been done. So the idea is that if you get people together and direct their consciousness in a certain direction, like there, there's real power in that. Um, the, the, alongside that, there are studies on psychokinesis where people are told to put their mental attention to a random number generator. So these are computers that spit out zeros and ones in a random fashion. And over time, the machines generate 50% ones and 50% zeros. People are asked in these experiments, and some of these were done at the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab, to say, they say, hey, Al, I want you to use your mind to try to make the machine produce more ones than zeros. And what happens over time, over many, many trials, is that the machines deviate from the 50-50 chance ever so slightly, hmm. but in a highly statistically significant manner. Hmm. So it suggests that the mind has power, which makes sense if you believe in a, a post-materialist science. But even beyond that, we also see studies done by the Global Consciousness Project, where these machines, random number generators, are set up all over the world, and the experimenters look at what happens when the when there is a major global event like 9-11 or something, they find that the machines behave non-randomly when there is a major global event. So whether it's the Maharishi effect, and the book is called An Antidote to Violence, it's by Barry Spivak and Patricia Ann Saunders, published in 2020, which has all the scientific evidence for this effect of collective consciousness. Um, when you combine that Maharishi effect with the studies done at Princeton and the Global Consciousness Project, if if people put their mindset in a similar direction, and imagine if it were a direction toward liberty and peace, for example, yeah, yeah. what could that do? Mm. Yeah. Uh, this explains, actually, to a large extent, how people can go along with what we're experiencing now, because it's the Maharishi principle implemented in a negative way. Uh, you talked about PTSD. Uh, people are being traumatized. You know, COVIDiots or the COVID cult, people yeah. are still, you know, Omicron has uh, an impact of the cold, according to the data. And by the way, the death toll of COVID, all strains, are, are just now coming out. And it's like 0.8% if you're unvaccinated. And I think it's like 0.1% if you are vaccinated. So those people who really are uh, have died from this have been people with huge health problems, comorbidities, particular heavy diseases like cancer, etc. So, so in general, we've had something, you know, the strongest version of the flu, also 1% death. You never get the globe worked up about the flu, but you manage to get them worked up with COVID. And most of the pain and suffering coming from COVID, we know now, again from data, has been from the lockdowns. Um, half a uh, billion, is that what you call it in English? Like like 500 million yes. yep. people has been brought out to, is down to new levels of poverty, whereas one trillion extra profit for the oligarchs in the same period. So more people have died and, and suffered 
from the reaction to the pandemic than from what COVID has managed to cause. I think if we survive, not just physically, but also as a culture, if we don't deteriorate to the darkest of medieval values system, then we'll look back at this as the first example of global mass psychosis, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there I'm remembering now a a phenomenon I learned in psychology in undergrad <laughs> called the framing effect, mm-hmm. where the way a problem is framed can influence the solution that 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 people believe to be right. So right now what's happening is COVID is being framed as essentially the only global problem. Mm-hmm. There are a few other things to worry about, but they are so minimized. So the choices that we're making are are based upon uh I think an inaccurate framing of all of the different issues that were faced with the world, whether medical tr- issues that were being faced, mental illness, uh, so many others. It's like we're only focusing on this one thing, this COVID, and therefore the decisions seem to be very imbalanced because we're not thinking about all of the other issues too. We're solving this one problem, like in the most extreme cases, zero COVID, um, but then you're not thinking about all of the other issues that's creating. It's this very myopic thinking that I am, I'm surprised, and I would say disappointed as well that that has that misframing has been successful on a grand scale. Yeah, yeah, it is disheartening to see how easy they could get away with this. Imagine if a real global crisis hits. I mean, uh, this experiment shows that you can transform. You can, yeah, you can put the world upside down overnight. Yeah. And I'm afraid putting it back, you know, curing upside down science, thinking and living will take a lot more energy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. And that's, as an author, um, something I think about because these ideas are very forward looking. (laughs) We're we're far away from a, a... uh, a mass consciousness in this direction. That's at least what it feels like. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm interested in understanding what's true and real. And that ends up leading me into places that uh, are sometimes isolated or, or sometimes just so outside of the mainstream thinking. But uh, I, I, that's something I've accepted. Yeah. I mean, if you live in a system where I, I remember Neil Armstrong warned us against the truth's protective layers that we needed to remove that to decode the secrets of the universe. But we, we, we're living in, in a world where this mentality, that truth, I mean, the rulers have that, that we can't handle the truth and truth is dangerous. And, and they even get individuals to believe the same thing too. Truth has never been popular. Yes, in party speeches, yes. But at the end of the day, people prefer their little bubbles like your friend. And... Uh, <laughs> I don't know, it takes an act of God to, I think, turn us around. I know I sound pessimistic, but maybe maybe our souls will move on to a better globe <laughs> in the future uh, and that we are doomed here to be stuck in this, in this. I mean, if history is anything to go by, it's just an entire chronology of struggling, you know, the creational forces against the suppression forces. So I'm I'm sorry, folks, to to leave you at this. Well, <laughs> let, let me. Um, I'll give some very speculative examples here because I've been yep. thinking about this for a long time, even before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I have been hearing from people that do, let's say, uh, spiritual channeling, where an intelligence speaks through them, yeah. or uh, hypnosis, 
where people are under hypnosis and this is less scientific, but they bring about information sometimes mm. about past lives and other things. Um, I'm thinking of one example of a channeler who talked about uh, essentially moving to a new dimension of consciousness, which Dolores Cannon talked about. She was a, a hypnotherapist as well. Of, and, and I remember asking this channeler or the entity that came through the channeler what, what that meant. What does it mean we're going to move into a new dimension? This is pre-pandemic. Mm. And the answer was that you're not, this is not something you're necessarily going to understand because it's, you, you've never experienced it before. We can't use language to explain what this new dimension of reality is going to be like. Mm. So that's something I've been holding as a positive. Maybe there's something that I can't, we can't conceive of, we can't predict that might happen. And another area of immense speculation here that I've heard people talk about is a splitting of society. And I, I believe Dolores Cannon talked about this based on the many clients she had and other people have speculated it pre-pandemic that maybe part of society would stay in the old system and then there would be another part that would move to a new system. Hmm. And I don't know what that means. <laughs> maybe it's something metaphysical or maybe it means that we actually have uh, parallel societies where there's one with more state control and one where there's more freedom both on earth, or maybe it's some other splitting that has never happened before. Yeah, I mean, it could. Uh, it doesn't have to happen at the same time everywhere at the same time at all areas. If you look at Bitcoin, that's an example of an emerging economy that is working parallel with the traditional economy. People think Bitcoin is just like these basement nerds sitting with a computer. No, in, in fact, in Afghanistan, for example, Biden and uh, well, I should say Blinken, uh, who is more the representative. Biden is just uh, uh, an empty shell, but. Those who are representing the military industrial complex in the American system right now are causing uh, mass hunger. What's that called? Famine. Famine mm -hmm. in Afghanistan, just out of spite, because they lost face when they... It was a Vietnam again. So in Afghanistan, people are so desperate that they have resorted to crypto coins because there's no money. And uh, the same is true in Nigeria. I know that, uh, which was a booming economy for a while. And after, you know, the poor countries are the first. Lockdowns aren't just hurting the local population, it's hurting global economy. In Nigeria, it's like America in that there's no facilities. There's no welfare at all. Every dog for himself. Mm -hmm. Only there's more poverty than in America. So there too, they are using crypto coins. Now, the interesting thing is that if the whole, if all the poor countries start to make that as the primary economy, if crypto takes over, all the poor people will have been so early with it that they will be very rich. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That will be upside down, man. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just in in uh, economy, I can envision, let's say, and YouTube, I'm not claiming this, but let's say there was some unforeseen, because Big Pharma is so kind that they don't want to do anything negative with you. They have your best interest in heart. But let's say they did a mistake. Errare humanum est. It's a human to mistake. Even Big Pharma can do mistake. And so... Because there hasn't been 15 years trials of these vaccines, like every all other vaccines, let's say we discover some bad, uh, what you call it, backlash in the future, medi medicinal speaking. Side effect. Side effect. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a double speak if ever there was one. Damages is what we usually call it. <laughs> so let's say that happened. I'm not saying this. This is philosophy. This is speculation. And you have like 80% of the world having been vaccinated 
Maybe not that much. 60%, I don't know the number. Let's say then many, many people would discover this problem in the future with their health. You know what would happen. It would automatically erode their belief in uh, mainstream, or, or as you say, industrial health. And many, many people would start seeking complementary and, and natural remedies, etc. Again, we were talking about is the paradigm shift happening quick or slow? In good times, slow. In crisis, quick. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, that's also the story of the human condition that throw at us a crisis and we may be able to turn around. We're very uh, flexible. We can adapt quickly. Uh, but unfortunately, we have to have that suffering as a um, oh, well. prerequisite to doing that. So so that would change it in, in, in health. And who knows what else can happen? And we don't know enough about how consciousness works. Maybe it interacts with fields in the cosmos. Like I'm not just talking astrology here. What about this idea if you enter a zone of the galaxy, then some kind of thinking is more natural than another, right? There's, there's so many things influencing us that I can see a paradigm shift happening relatively quick and in a benign direction, given certain circumstances. Just speculation, just hope porn, but <laughs> I think we need it in this this time. At least it's not unrealistic. It's not like impossible what we're talking about. Maybe it's not probable, but it's at least not impossible. Yeah, th there might be variables that we haven't even considered. And we haven't talked much about, let's say, extraterrestrial or multidimensional intelligence, right. how that plays into this. I really don't know. I've heard lots of speculation. Uh, mm -hmm. But are, are there forces, not only dark forces, but are there counteracting light forces that might be helping in some ways that could lead to a transition that's very positive? Mm. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, angels or saints or cosmic masters or whoever you are, you're doing a very lousy job right now. Yeah. Get back to your desk and help us out here. <laughs> we need it. Well, the flip side is they might say, well, look, it's part of your karma to experience this. And right. for some people, they are in their learning experience and they're going to have to go through a tough time. Uh, to varying degrees in order to learn and get to the next level of consciousness. Right. Uh, at the end of the day, I think what we need to do going forward is to have our priorities right. I think that's a very pressing problem. If people had like a freedom was on the top of people's list or among the top, then it would be much easier in the fields of politics and you know, social relations and media and all that stuff. But people don't really have an understanding of priority of what's important too. That's why they're lost in the minuscule details and, you know, divide and conquer. You know what? Well, yeah, I, I know what you mean. And my second book, An End Upside Down Living, starts with the question, what is the overall intention of your life? Right. And seeks to answer that question. And that really is what it comes down to, is having a really well-defined compass that is aligned with reality. And we don't have that on a large scale. Mm. This conversation we had today, is that what you're doing in your podcast? Because you're having a podcast too. What's the name of that podcast and what can people hear there? Thank you for mentioning it. It is called Where Is My Mind? And there are two parts to the podcast. Um, I interviewed dozens of people uh, that that are in this field of consciousness, and those conversation are, are they're free flowing, um, sometimes one to two hours, let's say, and those are on my website for subscription. 
Uh, but what I did with my producers is had a conversation uh, with one of the producers who is in the mainstream media and has lots of questions about consciousness, doesn't come from this post-materialist perspective. And I've been friends with him for a long time. Mm-hmm. So the podcast, which is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all the, all the major players, is a conversation between the two of us. Um, and there's music in the background and we take clips from the scientists that I interviewed. So in one of the episodes, we talk about near-death experiences and I say, well, look here, I talked to, uh, Dr. Ed Kelly from the university of Virginia who says X, Y, and Z, and we take clips from all of those things. So the, the series that is on Apple podcasts and all the, the players is an eight episode series. And each episode, there, there's a sequence to it, and they go through various topics like telepathy and near-death experiences and the life review, mediumship, children with past life memories, et cetera. And it's called Where Is My Mind? Hmm. So it's, it's more like a radio show in a way. It's not just, you know, many podcasts are just putting on the mic and talk. That's it. Very little editing, very little effects, very little structure to the program. But this sounds more like a professional radio show kind of thing. Yes, that's that's what it is. And initially, I was so excited about this material. This was in 2017 when I had first written the the manuscript of my first book and end upside down thinking. I said, "Well, I need to do a podcast and interview all these amazing scientists and put it out there for the world." And my friend, who was the only person I knew in podcasts, I, I asked him about it, and he said, "Mark, please wait." We'll do those conversations and people can listen to the long form, but I want to make this digestible for people. Mm. This is a very important topic. Mm. So he made me wait and we we turned it into a real production. Right. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. I, I thought you said it's already done by Alex. <laughs> <laughs> that too. <laughs> well, it's it's room for everyone. Well, great. I'm gonna I'm gonna check out some of those. But you you're saying the more traditional poker stuff, that's behind a, a paywall or something. Yes. And what most people, that, that's really for people that want the details. It's over 60 hours of interviews, oh, wow. but the, the, the refined um, production is that's all free on, on Apple podcasts, et cetera. Nice. And also I put two of the interviews on my YouTube channel, two of the ones that we thought are maybe the most important. One is my interview with Daniel Brinkley, who's had four near-death experiences and also my interview with Dr. Bruce Grayson. So my YouTube channel has those full interviews. Right, right. And I think uh, I saw, I think you reached, your podcast has reached the top 0.5% of podcasts or something, or top 1%. I am, I'm not aware of the recent stats my producers are, but I, that would be nice to hear if it's true. I think I looked it up because I hadn't heard of it. So yeah, I think it was yours. I, ch- I just checked it out. Anyway, that doesn't matter. If it's good, it's good, whether it's as one listener or one million listener. So check it out, folks. Okay. Well, well, damn, man. <laughs> I'm going to get comments of, uh, but, but at least they can hear I didn't talk over you. So that's fine. But usually it's like a battle, not like a hostile battle, but it's like a tango, you know, of who's getting the word in. Uh. And uh, I mean, some guests are very talkative. I need to put a dent in them to make them stop (laughs) or manipulate them, you know, guide them from here to there. But sometimes I get guests like you that are right on point. It's a very interesting and rare experience for me. So I'm fascinated. The discipline it takes. I mean, I'm not rigged like that at all. I'm wired like if you were interviewing me and you said a trigger point where I, I know a lot about it or I care a lot about it. I had a lot to say about it. I would just, you would have to, you know, okay, look at the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, well. So is it discipline or, or how do you get away with that? 
Well, you you were making lots of good points, and I there's lots of agreement and overlap. So I I would hope the listeners are gonna right. Uh, right. get. You know, that's how I'm thinking about it, is what are they gonna get out of it? And it's and it's also um, I I try to go along with the interviewer. I've done so many of these, um, and and so it's it's your show. That's how I think about it. Mm. Well, okay, fine. But uh, an important thing is you have truth as a goal. Yes. Yes. Um, Absolutely. You can say that for everyone. Or, or sometimes it can coincidence, but really you want to sell something or you want to push something or it's more intrusive, but you, you, you're more like an honest discoverer. And that's, oh, I wish that was more prevalent in our culture. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I get comments to my podcast sometimes where people, especially Americans, because your media is, of course, the worst of all, right? But they say, oh, it's so refreshing to see someone who can, have uh, I mean, not a long for conversation because Joe Rogan and others have exposed that, but just that, you know, have an intelligent debate without ego, without agenda or without winning. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just exchange. Yeah. Of, without uh, having to defend too much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's why uh, if you listen to my show with Anthony Peake, I was surprised that he very, very, you should interview him if you go back to your podcast, but he knows, he has this condition. What's it called when you remember everything you read? Uh, photographic memory. Kind of, yeah. But everything he understands, he, he saves. So he's like a machine, right? So he can talk about almost everything. Wow. But despite that, you should think he was talking down to you or talking over you. But no, extremely receptive. Uh, and... Yeah, you can pick up on that uh, in some people. I pick up on that in you too, that if you have that mindset where you want to get to the bottom of a truth, then you have, it's like it's like Tai Chi rather than Kung Fu. Do you understand yeah. the difference? Well, well and, I, and I feel very much like a, a, a novice or beginner. The more I learn, the more I realize there's a whole other area that I don't know about. <laughs> so right. that's my, my perspective. And anytime I do an interview, whether I'm interviewing or being interviewed, there's something that I'm learning. Right. Well, I can give you a hint. Uh, my background is from esoterics. And I can tell from your sources and stuff that you're not too familiar with that. But I think you'll move more and more in that area. You already started with the Gnostic stuff. Yeah. That's where everybody ends up when they really inquire. If they are, and this is just my assertion, of course, but same you can see with Alex. He, he also started with the classical tools, religion, science, and truth, right? Philosophy, you may say, is a third. But when you really balance between those areas, if you like, uh, they overlap, of course, some places. And you keep your mind strictly focused to truth. Sooner or later, you're going to end up in esoterics, is my claim. Remember, you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you're, you're spot on. I'm definitely moving in that direction. And, and there's benefit to the fact that I, I started more mainstream because I, I've been hoping to bridge. Uh, right, right. And, and with my background, at least I might be able to reach people just because they know where I came from and it's similar to them. Uh, but as I'm getting closer to the truth or trying to understand it, you, you inevitably end up becoming more esoteric and having to look there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I, but I think it helps that you have a very clear, kind of very structured mind, uh, if I could put it like that. Yeah, it's like you're very clear-minded. So uh, that helps, right? You can put your arguments succinctly down and back them up. And yeah, we need minds like that. So right. great, man. I, I'm a fan of your work, although I'm a novice of it. 
So terrific. Yeah. Are you probably going to do more books? Do you think you are? Uh, many people have told me I would will do more. I did one and I said, oh, that's a book. And I didn't think I would write another one. And people were asking me and I said, well, I don't know if I'll have enough information to write a, a, another book. And here we are. Uh, put it like that. You started with upside down thinking, right? Yeah. Then you went over to upside down living. And now you're at upside down. What was this called again? Liberty. Liberty, right. So you haven't covered all the upside downness yet. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I, yes, and the question is how do I how do I do that, um, and what do I want to write about, and uh, what is going to congeal into a thesis that could be a book or a podcast or something else? And right now, I don't know. Uh, well, it will come to you. Yeah, yeah. We'll wait and see. It will come to you. No, it's all good. Anyway, great stuff, man. Thanks a lot for for your time. Yeah, no worries, and thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it, and I, I hope your audience finds it interesting. Oh, they will, but they will complain I talk too much. But what little airtime you got, yeah, they love it. It's right down their alley. <laughs> okay. So I think you'll get. I think you'll get new readers from this. We have above average uh, book readers among our audience. Oh. That's one of the bragging points I use. Yeah, it's a bit more mature audience. Lots of Gen Xers. Yeah. But mature means also that they can afford reading and or have the time or capacity. Many people grew up reading. I'm talking like physical stuff, like books. Yeah. So that helps. Yeah, no. Is your book physical, by the way? Yes, it's it's physical and, and audible and Kindle. Okay. So people have the option. Yeah, fully covered. Anything else you're, you're involved? I mean, your list, your biography is, is huge, but anything else worth mentioning while I have you on here now? Well, we covered many topics. Thanks to your great questions, Al. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, in terms of my what I'm up to now, like yeah, I mentioned, I mean. yeah, I, yeah I, le I left my job and gave notice in late 2019, right before the pandemic, and have written two books since then. I don't know exactly what is next on the journey. I'm I'm very curious and I'm still researching. Uh, but I am on the board of directors of two organizations that I think are very important. One is the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which studies many of these phenomena scientifically like psi phenomena, energy healing, et cetera. So wasn't, I, it, wasn't that started by uh, this astronomer, Edgar Mitchell? Yes. Edgar Mitchell uh, founded it in 1973. He had I a, mean, astronaut, not astronomer. astronomer uh, an astronaut, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. He was an Apollo 14 astronaut who talks about a mystical experience he had of oneness. On his, I, I usually say about him, astronaut turned psychonaut. Yes, exactly. So he, I never met him. I joined the Institute after he had passed yeah, away, yeah, yeah. Uh, but he, he was very interested in these topics and there are not many places where you can formally and academically study uh, psychic abilities and the nature of reality in this way. So um, I enjoy my involvement there and also- You guys do great work. Thank you. We, there's so many people who are, are appreciative of it and even more people who don't know about it. So- it deserves a shot. In fact, I should probably interview someone from there and just, you know, give light. But we'll get back to that. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, go well, on. Uh, yeah, Dr. Dean Radin is probably the most well-known scientist. He's the chief scientist there. Oh. And Helene, Helene Wabe is the director of research, and she has a new book out on the science of channeling because uh, she's been studying that scientifically. So lots of great, amazing research being done there. Right. And the other organization that I'm a part of is is called the School of Wholeness and Enlightenment, <laughs> and it is uh, little, literally under construction. It's uh, it will be a retreat center outside of Asheville, North Carolina, oh, nice. with um, also an education platform. The details are still being worked out, but uh, when it's built, I think it will have a positive impact on society. 
Man, Mark, we are brothers in arms. <laughs> not only are we both freedom lovers, uh, and not only are we both podcasters, I too used to run a, a retreat center. <laughs> oh, wow. We, we call it Elysion, which is the Greek. It's the same as Elysium, but that's a Roman version. Okay. But yours were maybe less poetic, but much more enticing. I mean, I want to go to a place called that. <laughs> <laughs> that's our goal. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm enjoying these uh, these board positions and being able to think at the, at the high level of strategy and, and think about the, the global impact, because these are organizations where the intention is is very much toward elevating consciousness and helping the world. So that's at least at this point in my life, I'm I'm trying to focus my attention there, and we will see what's next. Right. Well, uh, keep us posted. Uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on you, and uh, maybe this won't be your last visit to the forum. But for today, I thank you so much for your patience, putting up with my long, convoluted questions. This is a good mix when I go the long way around the barn and you give the bam to the point <laughs> computer answer. <laughs> but it was a delight anyway. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you, Al. Again, I think it's probably my, my business training of being in, in board meetings where it's like they just want that snippet. They want to know the answer to that one thing. Get to the point. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I enjoyed it and I appreciate your perspectives and thank you so much for having me. Okay, man. God bless you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Al. Yeah. Enjoyed it. Take care. Yep, yep, they do. Bye bye. bye. Thus far today, and uh, I haven't exactly been quiet in this show, but uh, indulge me a little more while I give you some musings on the topic. First, some updates, and that is we now have an IMDb page, and I, and I wouldn't mind if you give us your review there. Now, it's not complete yet, but we aim to put in every episode we've ever released since we started with lots of details. So that will be a great resource to get some kind of survey of what's going on. Many people think it's a little chaotic um, for good reason, because it's hard to use our public channels as key to orientation, and our website isn't necessarily at par, the public part of it with a survey of our episodes. Although if you become a subscriber to our website, you will find every production in its original recording schedule. And uh, of course, as Bella reminds you, we always release everything first to our website. And at any given time, it's 10 unreleased shows after the principal one in, one out. So if you want first access, join our website. And there's also the occasional bonus. Now, in other news, we have stopped announcing new shows at our different social media. It's just too much of a hassle. And besides, why support those anti-liberty outlets? But on the other hand, you need to there need to be a way for you to know what's going on. So... If you go to our website, on the front page, on the landing page, we always announce all new releases there. Whether it's releases to our website subscribers or releases to our podcast platforms. Remember, we're at everyone, no matter which one you favor. Or releases to the video platforms. And per today, we're at YouTube, of course, and Rumble, Odyssey, and BitChute. Or you can simply sign up for our news mail or join our Telegram channel, which announces updates. 
No spam, no chatter, no plugs. Now, as for freedom, this is recorded in 22, which is a particular hard phase in our collective evolution. The old atavistic, greedy, centralistic control powers that be are really doing a push now to smack down. And after we've had, we had the Yellow Wests protests, we had uh, truckers blockade, we have seen the lockdown demonstrations, and now farmers all over the world are rising up against this great reset agenda which aims to enslave the western world which of course has been the beacon of liberty in many ways and uh, of course the the corrupt corporate media is not showing it to anyone so most people are oblivious of it even people in the same countries where they are rising up uh, I guess in India they managed to beat the multi-corporation uh, agenda but they're really struggling in New Zealand, Germany, Holland to case point some specifics, critical specifics. But it will be country after country after country. You should really check it up. There's great resources out there about what's going on. And it boils down to that they are using different excuses to dismantle industries so that the globalist cartels can gobble it up. For example, during the pandemic, we saw how they crushed the service industries, small businesses there. If you were like a big chain, let's say you were running a cafe or a restaurant, if you belong to the big chains, you were exempted. If you were running your own, you were crushed. Now, don't tell me that has to do with health. If it had anything, if the justifications were genuine, it would be the same for everyone. Um, and of course, in the 80s, 90s, 2000, we saw how many Western, especially American, manufacturing industries were destroyed by shipping it all over to, you know, China, India, countries where workers' rights are weak and where the income level is low. So that's what globalism means, by the way. I think I should educate people on this too, because so many people think globalism has to do with being against an international world. Like you have, have to be some kind of navel-gazing ethno-nationalist to, to be anti-globalist. No, no, no. First off, it was originally the left that woke up to globalism and was against it because they saw how they were shipping out jobs uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, how they were flooding the work market with cheap labor from immigrants and, and refugees who fled their own countries because the same multinational corporations had screwed up their countries, either by war or by imposing hardship, austerity, you know, by, for example, via the International Money Fund and the World Bank extorting their governments, if not just installing corrupt governments that's doing the bidding for the corporations and the Anglo-American oligarchs. So that leads to, of course, people wanting to get out of there and they, then they come into the countries where things have worked smoothly, more or less, at least compared to, to those places. And then we see how labor unions are weakened, salaries are being lowered, gig jobs are taking over for 
traditional people need, let's say, especially in places like America, two or three jobs to keep their head above water. They have a huge homeless population and people believe that's all oh, that's crazy people are drug addicts. Well, I think it's like 60% of them. Don't nail me on that statistic, but it's a huge percentage of them who are actually working people. <laughs> they just can't afford living. So we see our countries in the West are, are being turned into ter- third world countries. And uh, now the great attempt to uh, dismantle our level or the, the level of income for normal people is by destroying the food industry. Now they want us to eat insects. GMO junk food, fake meat, while they themselves bask in fine dining, organic human food. And a way to take over, you know, implement the GMO agenda particularly and dismantle organic is to steal land. Most of the lands, they are extorting it. Uh, and, and the farmers, small farmers, even big farmers, but still not a multinational corporation, indigenous people are losing land right and left. And uh, a way to do it is to, you know, in some countries, they, uh, the, the critical point has been raising prices for products that the farmers need. Just fake rising it, bam, because they control it, because they are the multinational corporations. We know how Monsanto for so long has been seeding GMO crops into farms and then bankrupting them because they have the patent of those seeds. It's truly diabolic. And now they're using also the climate change agenda. That's critical in New Zealand. They are imposing taxes, so-called green taxes. Of course, the whole charade is that they don't care about climate or environmentalism. They are using it as an excuse. These are the same people who are actually doing the climate pollution. Look it up. 100 companies, 100 multinational corporations are behind 70% of the pollution in the world. I'm talking now this CO2 hysteria that has derailed and crushed environmentalism movements. I'm a great environmentalist. I love earth. I love nature. And I think we should live in harmony with it. And I support organic farming and all sorts of initiatives that are friendly to life. But the CO2 agenda has sucked up all the air in the room, pun intended. And I don't care if you believe in anthropogenic climate change or you think it is due to other reasons, that's irrelevant here. Because those who are actually doing it (laughs) are the ones who are uh, punishing, uh, in this case, farmers, with thresholds that are impossible to meet. So they bankrupt them, and then what happens? The huge multinational corporations take over, and they are worse. Of course, normal farmers know that they are depending on the lands. So they are usually nature-friendly and eco-friendly, as much as is possible, as much as is allowed for them to be. Because in some cases, they may be stuck 
in a system, a corporate system where they are dependent on un-eco-friendly measures to survive. But again, that's not on them. That's on these people who want to take over. And look at, for example, Bill Gates, one of these Anglo-American oligarchs. He's now the the largest landowner in the world after he did a dirty deal and took over huge areas, especially from indigenous people in America. And and where are the pitchforks? So we, we need to wake up to this huge agenda. Um, it, it seems as if they won't stop until nobody uh, are in charge of their own economy anymore. They don't want people to own their own houses or own their own businesses. And also they don't want workers who owe nothing to have rights and uh, autonomy over their own conditions. And that's the recipe of enslavement. So I know it's it's depressing matters, but, uh, you know, here at the forum, we try to balance between positive uh, messages and, um, you know, mysteries and... uh, educational stuff and sometimes unfortunately we have to put light on the darkness so that we all can become aware you know after the Jungian model uh, if we become aware of the shadows that's how we can transmute them we it does not help to suppress it to be an ostrich and bury our heads in the sand and pretend it's not there in fact that's just empowering our collective shadow, uh, in our in this case, that being the power elite, the Western power elite. So, yeah, be in uh, in favor of uh, nature and ecology by all means. Just understand that it used to be a huge movement that was protecting us on so many areas. Nowadays, it's all about climate change and those who are behind. The anthropogenic generation of CO2 are the same people who are trying to, in this case, crush farmers with that uh, excuse. So it's not about uh, climate change. It's not about nature. It's about a battle for the soul of humanity and how we are going to enter into this new millennium. Will it be with decentralization? international cooperation and peace and prosperity, people living in harmony with nature, people being taking responsibility for their own life and being empowered in their own life, or should we all be a grey mass marching lockstep in a prison planet which is one huge factory and we are the plebs? That's the ultimate doomsday scenario which we need to be mindful of so we can fight it. And how do we fight it? In many, many ways. Activism, of course. Spread the word when there are protests because the media, who we are, of course, are corporatist and owned by the same powers, are not shedding any light on it. Uh, We can use social media for this, although the algorithms are blocking us. And partake in in, uh, civil disobedience, partake in protests when it is about fighting and protecting the areas under attack. And uh, and when it comes to politics, always vote populists. Uh, It's true that most of the Great Reset corporate-friendly politicians are neoliberals, neoconservatives in the mainstream of both left and right. And often then the only options will be the fringe left and right, so-called. But the populist 
is always a way to go because populist representatives by definition listens to the people and fights for the people there may be fake populists of course so hold them accountable but always go for whether you vote left or you vote right or you vote center there's by the way no reason there can't be populist center candidates too but whatever your identification is when it comes to the isms of ideology always look for those who favor decentralization anti-corruption autonomy and of course freedom thanks for staying with us as long as it's lasting i've been your host Al. thanks to my team and your support finally i am reminiscent of orwell's warning if liberty means anything at all it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear be seeing you Number one.